Whether we like it or not, advertisements have become an intrinsic part of our shared culture. As James Twitchell shares in his book, 20 Ads That Shook the World, adverts are arguably a core part of the common culture that all of us share. He gives an example to try and prove his point. See, back in 1987, an English professor named E.D. Hirsch published a book called Cultural Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know. The book aimed to document every element of American culture, and the book was very controversial. It focused mainly on the culture shared by white men, not minority groups. But regardless, the author still diligently tried to document everything important in US culture. I'm going to read out some of the elements of US culture that he shared, and I want you to have a think about how much you'd be able to talk about these elements. You know, do you recall them? Do you know what they are? Would you be able to talk about them confidently? All right, here's a list. Ampersand, Auschwitz, Neville Chamberlain, Dog in the Manger, Federalism, Indira Gandhi, D.W. Griffith, Hoover Dam, Herman Menville, National Guard, Battle of Stalingrad, Richard Wright. The list goes on. The chances are you'll know some of these, but I doubt even Americans listening will know them all. But now listen to this list. It's a list of advertising slogans and advertising entities. Listen carefully and think about how many of these you can recall. Just do it. Colonel Sanders. Finger looking good. Love it or hate it. 57 varieties. Because I'm worth it. The best a man can get. Tony the Tiger. Jolly Green Giant. Betty Crocker. I'm loving it. We try harder. 1,000 songs in your pocket. I'm feeling lucky. Snap, crackle, pop. Let's face it. We recall much, much more in that second list. Our shared culture isn't really built on influential leaders, military battles, political concepts and remarkable monuments. It's based, at least partly, on adverts. And this should come as no surprise. We are bombarded with advertisements all the time. Some predict that we see between 5,000 to 50,000 ads a day. Watch an hour of TV in the States and you'll see 14 minutes worth of ads. It's seven minutes in the UK, thankfully. The same happens when you listen to the radio or load up YouTube, scroll through Facebook or flick through Twitter. Because of this, advertisements appear to be part of our common culture, something all of us from young to old seem to know. We may not know what planets are in our solar system, but we know what goes in a Big Mac. We can't tell if a symphony is by Beethoven or Mozart, but we can taste the difference between Coke and Pepsi. Of course, this isn't the case for everyone, but it is the case for most of us, and it's happening almost without us knowing. We've stumbled into a world that is dominated by advertising, and we're only beginning to understand the effect that has on our world. Today, I want to share five examples of advertisements that have literally shaped the world we live in today. Some have changed our morning routines, others have changed our Christmas celebrations, some have determined the leaders we pick, and others have determined who we find attractive. The goal of this podcast isn't to scare you about the perils of modern-day capitalism, but instead, I want to document how historical ads have shaped our culture today. All the ads I'll share today are at least 50 years old, and this is on purpose. We don't know the effects today's ads will have on our future culture, But if history is anything to go by, they will change that culture. Because the five ads I'll share have literally changed the world. All of that coming up, but first, here's a podcast I'd recommend. 
The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. In the early 1900s, only 7% of American households brushed their teeth or at least had toothpaste in their house. During World War I, most of the army recruits had such poor oral hygiene that the military considered dental disease a national crisis. That's when the creator of a minty toothpaste, Pepsodent, approached an advertising man called Claude Hopkins to launch this toothpaste product. Only after receiving a six-month option on a block of stocks did Hopkins agree to proceed. Thus, out of the need to actually sell the product he was advertising, Hopkins came up with an ad that created a brand new habit of brushing teeth daily throughout the USA and the rest of the world. It was at this time and after this ad that people started to brush their teeth. But who is Claude Hopkins and what did he know about advertising? Well, Claude Hopkins was one of the first ad men who truly understood what many of us still struggle to understand today. Good marketing, good advertising involves tying the value that the customer will get with the thing, the product that you're selling. Here's how it works. When Hopkins was selling Bissell Carpet Sweeper, he never discussed how well it worked, but instead the colourful wooden finishes and the fact that it would make a nifty Christmas present. In fact, he called it the queen of Christmas presents. When selling Swift and Company's lard, he never talked about the qualities of this lard, but about the restaurants that used the product. When selling Schiltz beer, he never cited the brew, only that the bottles were washed with live steam. When advertising Van Camp's pork and beans, he stressed that the beans were baked for hours at 245 degrees. He was the first to say that Goodyear tyres were for all weather. He said that palm olive soap was a beauty bar used by Cleopatra. And most famously, when working with Quaker Oats, he changed the name of wheat berries to puffed wheat and sold it, along with puffed rice, as foods amazingly shot from guns. Grains puffed to eight times their normal size and 125 million steam explosions caused in every kernel. James Twitchell states in his book that in each case, you can see how Hopkins is constantly showcasing the value the product provides. He never compares his product with a competitor. He never mentions price. He never talks about customer quotes or use cases. But his methods change the behavior of millions, most notably with Pespodent toothpaste. Ten years after his first campaign launch with Pespodent, more than 65% of Americans had developed a daily habit of brushing their teeth. By the 1950s, Pespodent was sold throughout the world, and for more than 30 years it remained a top-selling American toothpaste, earning billions of dollars. By the end of World War II, the American military downgraded their concern for oral hygiene because so many recruits had established a daily brushing routine. Which begs the question, what did Claude Hopkins do in his ad? Well, he didn't talk about the product, he didn't talk about the benefits, he didn't mention the price. According to his autobiography, he read through as many scientific journals on toothpaste that he could find, and he said they were dry as dust. But in the middle of one volume, he found an idea that helped him make millions from the toothpaste. The idea was the dingy film that appears on your teeth. See, naturally, teeth develop a film, a coating that covers your teeth. 
rub your tongue along your teeth and you can feel it, all of us can. So Hopkins chose this as his enemy. In his ads, he focused on how millions of germs are breeding in that film. He then linked the dingy film back to the product, suggesting that Pespodent will remove the viscous coating and make you more hygienic, healthier and more attractive. In the famous ad, Hopkins wrote that the film is the viscous coat that you feel. It clings to your teeth, enters crevices and stays. When left, it forms the basis of tatar and teeth will look discoloured. Now, this isn't based on hard science, but it is based on hard psychology. When prompting people to notice something and associate it with a negative element, we'll want to take action. Then Hopkins reveals the solution. He wrote, Pespodent curdles the film and removes it without harmful scouring. Note how clean the teeth will feel after using. Mark the absence of the viscous film. See how teeth whiten as the film coat disappears. Hopkins achieved what no toothpaste manufacturer had achieved before. He turned toothbrushing into a habit, a habit that changed Pespodent's trajectory from close to bankruptcy to now something that is part of our cultural vocabulary. The pespident smile is a well-known term to describe someone with a beautiful smile. And all of that happened by linking the product with value, by highlighting how pespident removes a problem. Not by talking about price or product descriptions, but by matching problems with benefits. It's a hundred-year-old lesson that many marketers today would do well to remember. What's so impressive about Hopkins' ad is that he created a problem that people didn't know they had. Folks in the 1800s didn't ever think about the film on their teeth, but today we're obsessed with it. We regularly rub our tongue along our teeth and think they need a clean. In a sense, advertising created the need to brush our teeth. But that's not all. Ads also developed the basic concept of bad breath. That's right, up until the 1920s, there really was no such thing as bad breath. Now, I don't mean that bad breath literally didn't exist. I just mean that people didn't really notice it or refer to it. People had problems with their mouth, of course, diseases, bad teeth, and obviously people had bad smelling breath, but it wasn't considered socially offensive. It wasn't something we noticed. Back then, Americans only bathed once a week, on Saturday in preparation for the Sabbath. Hair was rarely washed, soap was made out of animal fats and often smelt worse than body odour. So what caused us to notice our bad breath? Well, it wasn't a sudden evolution in our nasal senses, it was an evolution in advertising. Just like Pespodent, Listerine decided to highlight a problem that people didn't know existed. Bad breath. Listerine put all their eggs in one basket, deciding not to advertise their product, but instead to advertise bad breath, to sell the idea that smelly breath was bad. That was their aim, and they focused on that intensely. Listerine's owner at the time, Jordan Wheat Lambert, made a pledge to increase his advertising each month by the same percentage as the increase of his sales. He claimed he would only stop advertising when the sales levelled off. For as long as he owned the company, they never did, and he kept on increasing advertising. From 1922 to 1929, earnings rose from around 100000 to more than $8 million. By the time of the stock market crash, Listerine was one of the largest buyers in the magazine and newspaper space, spending more than $5 million on ads, almost the exact amount they made in profits, and far more than any other player in the field. And over all that time, the product's price, package and formula did not change. All that changed was the advertising. Listerine found that advertising bad breath 
was essentially four times more effective than advertising Listerine as a brand. Look at old ads for Listerine and you'll see that they are selling this problem, not the product. Ads tend to show young women unhappy due to their bad breath. Headlines read, often a bridesmaid but never a bride, and referred to the fact that her bad breath meant she could never find a man. Other ads referred to the man having bad breath and saying, I could be happy with him in spite of that. The problem Listerine marketed was bad breath, or halitosis, as it was medically referred to. The ads would sometimes be blunt and read, halitosis makes you unpopular. They'd go on to read, bad breath is inexcusable, but it can be instantly remedied. These ads literally changed the world. They invented a problem that we did not know existed. Bad breath. And by inventing this problem, they changed behaviour in a way that they never could have done with traditional forms of advertising. If you want to create a seminal change in human behaviour, you're best off changing how people perceive a problem rather than changing how they view your product. Toyota Prius isn't an electric car, it's a chance to save the world from climate change. SpaceX isn't a satellite firm, it's our only hope to continue human civilization after the destruction of the Earth. And Listerine, it isn't a mouthwash, it's a solution to your loneliness and impending life as a bachelor or bachelorette. We're used to ads that highlight problems today, but back in the 1920s, it was a brand new concept and it genuinely changed how people perceived the world. These first two ads developed a new problem, something we didn't think existed before. But the next ad did something a little different. Rather than building a problem, it tweaked our perception of an event and drastically changed how much we spend on that event. The company is De Beers and the product is diamond engagement rings. Today, we happily spend thousands of pounds, a huge amount of our yearly income, on a diamond engagement ring. It is a necessary aspect of one of the most well-known rituals us humans follow. It is a core part of our cultural identity. Show us the ring is what people cry after an engagement. This is a story of how a product, a diamond ring, became such a core part of this ritual. If we head back 70 years, we'll see that De Beers and other diamond ring suppliers didn't have the gleeful success we see today. No, instead they were facing every manufacturer's worst nightmare, increasing supply and decreasing demand. Diamonds were becoming widely available with efficient mining, better diamond identification, plus faster extraction and transportation. Diamonds were becoming commonplace. They were becoming a commodity, which for a luxury brand like De Beers was a major problem. Diamonds were on the verge of becoming a cheap everyday item, not the exclusive one-off purchase that we know today. There was really a lack of scarcity. So, to change our perception, De Beers, like Listerine and Pespodent, turned to adverts. Before starting to advertise, they conducted one of the most thorough market research studies ever done. Here's what they gleaned from carefully interviewing 2,073 married women, 2,042 married men, married men, plus 480 college men and 502 college women. They asked all about the wedding ritual and how they viewed engagement. Turns out this generation of people simply did not associate diamond engagement rings with a wedding, an engagement, or even with romantic love. The other problem they identified was that young men were confused about how much to pay and how big a diamond they had to buy in order to satisfy their bride-to-be. The problem was clear. People didn't believe that diamond rings were necessary for engagement, and even if they did, they had no idea how much they would spend. And because of this, at the time, only 10% of engagement rings bought 
were diamond. All of this changed after one infamous De Beers ad. The ad asked readers to consider, how can you make two months' salary last forever? Beneath that text, a stunning De Beers diamond engagement ring was pictured. A diamond is forever, the slogan read. The simple ad solved both problems. One, it linked a product with a lifelong commitment that marriage represents, more so than any other product had been linked with a lifelong commitment before. It suggested that to start a lifelong commitment, it made sense to buy a lifelong product. And as the ad says, a diamond is forever. But the ad goes even further, using arguably the best use of anchoring that we've ever seen in advertising history. The ad states that just two months' salary can make a marriage last forever. It provides a clear anchor that suggests what the buyer should spend. Of course, two months' salary was much, much more than what wedding partners were spending at the time. But the ad provided an anchor that changed perception. It lifted people's expectations and set a new cultural norm. To show how arbitrary this anchor is, we just have to look at how De Beers tweaked the ad for different cultures. In America, the buyer is told to fess up two months' salary, while in Japan, buyers are told to devote four months' earnings to purchase the ring. The actual value of the product doesn't seem to affect the amount we spend. Those diamond rings have a margin of around 78%. You're not buying something with intrinsic value, you're buying a statement of your commitment. And if it wasn't for these ads, if it wasn't for the campaigns that De Beers ran, we probably wouldn't be so enamoured with diamond rings today. Since first airing, these famous Diamonds Are Forever ads have dramatically changed consumer behaviour. In 1940, only 10% of Americans bought a diamond engagement ring. Today, it's 80%. In Japan, where that anchor is set higher, as I mentioned, the number of people buying a diamond ring has gone from 5% to 77% in just 30 years. And De Beers are repeating the trick in China, with diamond engagement rings going from 1% of those bought to 31% in just 16 years. The De Beers ads changed the world, not only because it drastically changed one of the fundamental rituals that almost all humans experience, but also because it showcased the power of one of the world's most powerful nudges, anchoring. De Beers simply showed how powerful anchoring can be. If you want people to spend more, just set a higher anchor. If it wasn't for De Beers, we might not have RRP prices today. We might not have extortionate wine prices on a restaurant menu or even developments like the first class cabin or premium leather car seats. De Beers opened marketers' eyes to the power of anchoring and the persuasion techniques haven't been the same ever since. Now, while De Beers managed to change how we initiate a common ritual of marriage, Coca-Cola changed how we view the common ritual of Christmas. After the break, I'll share how Coca-Cola achieved something that most advertisers can only dream of, linking their product so closely with Christmas that they actually got their brand colours of red and white to symbolise Father Christmas himself. That's the story of how Coca-Cola changed Santa's uniform, and it's coming up after this quick 60-second break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. 
Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new Service Hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Now, if you look through Byron Sharp's best-selling book, How Brands Grow, you'll come away with one clear takeaway. To grow a brand, you need to build associations with that brand. Red Bull boosts your energy and improves your performance. Coca-Cola provides refreshment. British Airways provides a majestic way to fly, while Ryanair offers the most economical way to get away. Brands, simply put, are the sum of the things we associate with them. A brand with no associations is a brand that's forgotten. And no association is stronger than a tie with an existing event, especially events that happen on a recurring basis. Brands are desperate to tie their products with events. Pims want to be the drink of choice at Wimbledon, while Heineken aims to be the fan favourite at a football game. Companies are so obsessed with matching their brands with events that many have taken over cultural events. St. Patrick's Day is about drinking a Guinness. Cinco de Mayo is about splashing some Tabasco on your taco. Halloween is about dishing out Hershey's or Cadbury's. While breakfast was literally the creation of cereal companies, we genuinely used to eat dinner scraps at the start of the day, not a whole different type of food. The coffee break, for example, used to be at 4pm in the afternoon, until the coffee roasters moved it to the morning to provide more chances for coffee consumption. The cocktail hour was invented by advertisers, as was bottomless brunch and the ploughman's lunch. Brands want to build associations with common events as it makes the consumption of their product acceptable, commonplace, and at times expected. And I think no other brand has had more success in this case than Coca-Cola. By the end of the 19th century, Father Christmas, or Santa Claus, was a staple part of our shared identity. He was everywhere. He was written about in newspapers, magazines, and in Christmas books. The problem was, at the time, there was no universal shared visual of him. In some circumstances he was thin, in others he was fat. Some would depict him with black hair, others with grey. Occasionally he'd feature a green jacket, or perhaps no jacket at all. The Saint Nick that we all picture today did not come from folklore, he came from yearly advertisements from the Coca-Cola company. They were the ones that built the image of Santa in our mind, and they specifically tailored Santa Claus to match their brand image. The Santa we know today wears the corporate colours of Coca-Cola. As James Twitchell puts it in his brilliant book, Santa isn't working out of the North Pole, he's working out of Atlanta. Why did this happen? Well, Coca-Cola was struggling to make their cold, refreshing summer drink into a cold-weather beverage. So they matched their product with Christmas and came up with the slogan, First Knows No Season. The ads featured Santa wearing cola colours with a big belly and a bottle of Coke. 
They showed Santa enjoying a cold soft drink in December. They showed Santa relaxing on his travels by drinking a Coke. They even showed children leaving Father Christmas a Coca-Cola rather than milk beneath the fireplace and attempted to build the notion that kids received presents in return for the Coke. Slowly and steadily, Coca-Cola's Santa started to own Christmas. From the late 1930s to the mid-1950s, the Coca-Cola brand became the brand that was associated with Christmas. Eventually, other brands saw the benefits and started to get in on the act, diluting some of the hold cola had. We don't leave Coca-Cola under the tree today, but kids do still dream about the cola-branded Santa. Now, so far, we've seen how ads change our cultural rituals, vastly affect the amount we spend, and drastically change our routines. But for the final ad, I wanted to share an example of an advertisement that changed our future, an ad so effective that it influenced who Americans elected, and ultimately the wars Americans fought in. The ad, which aired in 1964, encouraged people to vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. Now, in general, there are three kinds of political ads. Positive ads, which show your candidate's benefits. Comparative ads, which compare the candidates against each other. And negative ads, ads that purely throw mud on your competitor. It's often been said that he who slings dirt loses the most ground. And this was often the case with political ads before the 1960s. Throwing your opponent under the bus just wasn't the done thing, and voters weren't convinced by it. That was until the 1964 election between Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater. While Johnson was leading in the polls in the run-up to the election, there was concern in his camp. The tide was starting to turn and his opponent, Goldwater, was gaining popularity in the polls. That was until Johnson produced arguably the greatest political ad of all time. It was a negative ad. An ad attacked his opponent, Barry Goldwater, but without ever mentioning Goldwater by name. In a television documentary called The Classics of Political Advertising, Senator Eugene McCarthy called it the most effective media campaign in American history. In part because the viewer does all the nasty work of associating the negative with Johnson's competitor. The ad features a young girl in a field counting petals on a flower. The ad slowly zooms in on her face, zooming in to the pupil of her eye, and then a voiceover takes over. These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live are to go into the dark. We must either love each other or we must die. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. The ad leveraged our negativity bias and loss aversion. These psychological principles that show how we are attracted towards negative events and how we fear losses more than equivalent gains. But the ad goes even further because it also avoids psychological reactance. See, reactance is something all of us feel when we're told to do something or told to think something. If children are told not to play with a toy, they'll only want to play with it more. 
if adults are told not to work from home, they suddenly don't want to lose that benefit. Now, most negative political ads fail because they're too black and white. They tell people what to think, that the opponent is an idiot or a bad leader or even a communist. But this won't work with most voters. In a two-party system, the voters of the opponent party aren't convinced by attacks. Reactants will kick in. However, Lyndon Johnson's ad circumvented reactants by not mentioning Goldwater directly. Instead, the ad showcased what the world could look like unless you took action. White font on a black screen asks viewers to vote for President Johnson on November 3rd as the voiceover declares, the stakes are too high for you to stay at home. The ad was an unparalleled success, propelling Johnson to this incredible election day result. With 61.1% of the popular vote, Johnson won the largest share of the popular vote of any candidate since the largely uncontested 1820 election. So the best result in over 100 years. And it changed the way elections worked. In the following 1968 president election, candidate Richard Nixon was waiting to appear on The Mike Douglas Show. He complained to Roger Ailes, then a producer on the talk show, that it's too bad a guy has to rely on gimmicks like television to get elected. Ailes, who went on to become head of Fox News, he knew better. He replied, television is not a gimmick and nobody will ever be elected to a major office again without knowing how to use it. He was right. TV ads have become a staple of every major election since. Without them, you simply have no chance of winning. Put simply, advertisements don't simply boost a politician's chances. They are necessary to get them into office. All right, folks, that is it for today's episode of Nudge. I need to finish up by giving a massive shout out to the main source that I use for this episode. It is a book called 20 Ads That Shook the World by James B. Twitchell. The book is brilliant. It walks through how some of the most groundbreaking advertisements of the last century have changed the world we know today. If you like today's show, you'll love that book. I've, I've left a link to it in the show notes. The book helped me realise how ads from decades ago shaped the world we live in today, and it's made me a little apprehensive about how ads today might be shaping our future world as well. We often think about ads and messaging as something that's only relevant to the current moment or issue, but James Twitchwell's book shows that it can have a lasting impact that sticks around for generations. As always, if you enjoyed today's show, please do consider signing up for my newsletter. You'll get an email every time a new episode goes live. And my nudge tips are sent every Friday. These tips walk through a specific behavioural science concept, giving you information on how it works and advice on where, where to be aware of it and how to use it. Join 1,500 other people on the newsletter by going to nudgepodcast.com and clicking newsletter in the menu. While you're there, while you're on my website, you can also check out my course. It is a 52-video lesson course that walks through the science behind marketing. If you work in marketing and want to apply behaviour science to your role, then that course might be for you. As always, I'd love your feedback. Let me know what you think of today's show or the show in general. You'll find me on Twitter. I'm P underscore Agnew. That's P underscore A-G-N-E-W. That's me on Twitter. And I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Phil Agnew on there. If you like today's show, please do subscribe wherever you listen. Please do drop us a review. That really helps the show grow. All right. Thank you for listening, folks. I'll be back next week with another episode of Nudge. Cheers.